This is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast. The Modern Architect features one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. Our show informs and illuminates the transformation that architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. And now, introducing the host of The Modern Architect, Tom Dioro. Today, we are uh, real honored and excited to be uh, joined by George Kelly, architect and principal of Kelly Architects. For more information, feel free to visit their website at kelly-architects.com. Again, that's kelly-architects.com. Today's episode is made possible by Swatchbox, the leading sample platform for architects and designers. Swatchbox brings thousands of product samples from the world's leading manufacturers into one platform. Browse materials for inspiration, create custom collections, then request your samples for free with automatic next day or second day shipping. Get started at Swatchbox.com. George, welcome. Thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. This is a, a great honor and very exciting. Well, def- definitely. Now, George, uh, we let's start our show off with a, uh, a quote or a prayer or a mantra and, and share what you shared in our uh, digital green room about uh, architecture. Yeah, when I started my business, I had people say, well, you have to have a mission statement or you have to have a tagline. And I just said, you know what? I want to do really good projects for good people. I'll leave it at that. And I think everything else okay. will take care of itself. Why do you think that really resonated really with you and still does to this day? Uh, before I started Kelly Architects, I worked 14 years as a commercial architect, a partner at a big firm. And I started working on things that weren't really the best interest of the public or myself. And then, you know, some clients here and there. And I go, there's got to be a better way. There must be a more true believer client base. And we found that in the restaurant, bar, nightclub world, that they really are some of the best clients and they're and they are good people you hear the stories of the the bad people but uh we've seen it with our clients who really believe in wholesome food or good quality and good service they end up having nice families they take care of each other and then we end up spending a lot more money on their projects and we do a lot better projects for them it kind of goes hand in hand it's that we share a common passion how are your your clients if you're uh if you'd like to share in that they really trust your uh, your design, your design process, and how you work with them, um, as opposed to you know some folks just like say I've experienced before is they hire an architect and kind of try to tell them what to do, which is like having needing surgery and saying, oh, you know what, I know I need to operate on my appendix, but I think if you came in this way, it'd be a lot better. Well, I kind of stay more open minded with that. We we do work for a few people who are incredibly creative. You know, one of our projects, the Edison, the owner there, Andrew Meyer, and he's a real visionary. And with him, it's more of an artist and artist collaboration. And he's got a vision and we're going to implement his vision. But he always will back off to a point where, okay, you're designing the stair. I'm not. The technical, very architectural things. And that's a different type of contract. I'm, but I'm, a, I'm a comfortable being a much more uh, step back because the results are going to be amazing. And then we have other clients who come in and they just have come up with a great recipe for a sandwich and they don't have any idea what to do. And they're like, I need you to just help me do all of it. Um, and so we're doing some of those where we're doing conceptual design and graphics and giving them everything. So then 
they can have a wonderful brand in a restaurant. So, we're, so in the restaurant world, we sort of have to be open to all the different types of characters. Um, and unlike other maybe architecture, in, when they open, it's okay with me if the client gets all the credit. I mean, if, if, if you're reading about an architect designed a restaurant, I'll be honest, a lot of times those restaurants fail. You need to hear about the chef and the meal and the food and the service. Those are the restaurants that go on and on. And if we get mentioned, that's great. But it is one of these things there. Maybe it's also because we work for the owner of the restaurant almost exclusively. We don't tend to work for large chains and people who have hundreds of units. We're working with someone who's trying to build something very specific. And in that regard, you have to let them, well, we need them to tell us how far they want to be involved. What do they want? Um, and maybe it's just because my ego is not there with having to be the author of all of it. I'm more of the conductor. And you're, you're obviously uh, more than okay with that. How much do you believe the, uh, the design and the aesthetics and the essence of restaurant design has an impact in the actual success, given that the, accepting that the food is just good or excellent? In the, the sort of large performing multi-million dollar projects, it's, it's hugely important. It's really, and it's important from a, the perspective of what is the visual you're giving people. I kind of, I can turn this into a narrative. I, I explain to my clients, I'm gonna take care of them for about 15 minutes. I'm gonna get them in the door. I'm gonna get them in a nice seat. They're gonna look around the room. You gotta consider that customer's hungry. So while you might be talking about your day, they're not really paying attention. They're looking, oh, look, they have the vodka I like, or I like that plan. But then when the food comes, they have to take over. And so yes, design is important, comfort, ergonomics and flow is hugely important. Um, but in the end, the reasons they fail is not for design, they fail for service and food quality. Or financially, sometimes there's reasons, but uh, I think what the design comes in is it answers that question, why me? How am I different than every other pizza restaurant? How am I different than every other sushi or every other bar? They're all going to give you the same drink and the same pizza on some level, and that will differ in a bit, but maybe it's the lightness of the room or the comfort of the chair or... Uh, a lot of the times it's the variety. You can keep going back to a restaurant because there's seven or eight different seating groups and areas. And uh, so you'll go with two people, six people, eight people and have a different experience every time. So that, and I, I consider all of those design in the design, um, you know, and in the end there's an aesthetic that has to match the food or the quality. Um, and sometimes there's a lack of an aesthetic. We've had a few clients who want almost nothing. Um, they, want, they want the food, but I'll tell you, they struggle a little more when you have the almost art gallery meets restaurant. It doesn't, I don't think people have that warm, fuzzy place if they want to go back there. But if it's too simply understood, you may only need one time to ever experience it. And that's not a good recipe for a successful restaurant. The acoustics. How important are the acoustics in a restaurant? And what I mean by acoustics in, in the question are that you're able to talk and speak with each other versus you know, hearing everybody's conversation and really having to yell at whoever your guests or your, your uh, um, the people you went to the restaurant with. Uh. So acoustics are your, I kind of think it's what you are, your expectation on sound. Um, when you're going to a nicer dining restaurant, you're spending a significant amount of money and you're with family, you're going to want to hear each other 
speak really well. Uh, when you're going out to some of these restaurants that are more boozy and crazy, you're okay if you can't really hear people because maybe there's a DJ in the room and, and in that acoustics, I want to hear the music. And it's not a, it's not a scene where I want to uh, have a serious conversation. And I think so we do our acoustic design and engineering in-house and things, but I'll bring up the story of the famous restaurant Moza that it opened and they said, George, it's so loud in here. Nobody can hear anybody. And I'm like, okay, it's a great room. It had tall ceilings and a lot of variety. But I went in there. It was so loud because everyone was screaming about their meal. They were, this pizza is the best pizza I've ever had. Oh, my God. Like at the level of their voices. So when I explained it, I was like, we're really going to have to deaden this room. It won't be a half inch of material, it might be three or four inches. So we end up lining every wall, every ceiling with acoustics, and they're still really loud restaurants because the people just won't be quiet. And that happens also a lot of brand new openings. People just are um, chatty. But it, I, I talk a lot about the acoustics because I think it is, what are you expecting? And we're getting more and more of these vibe restaurants and scene restaurants where there is a little more DJ music, uh, you know, you're having the conversation, or we also will then do the more, you're seeing a few designs where the booths are going all the way up over your heads. We're doing some things that you can pull a drape. And if you need to have that serious business talk, we can put you in there. But the clients, a lot of them, sometimes they call, I want, they want what's called a lively room. Too dead of a room again. Now you're a quiet restaurant and it doesn't have any sort of pop. We're hearing like a woman cackle across the room can actually bring sort of a joy to your heart. Like, what did, what's so funny over there? <laughs> There's so much to consider with all of this. this our, your audience today is going to love this. What You, you spoke earlier on how you um, moved into to restaurants in, in those venues. Was it by design or a little kind of uh, lack of, there's a better word than default, but was it by design or kind of, you know what, they just... I think, you know, life is a journey. It. And if you show up, things are going to happen. And in my situation, to, to the architects out there, I, I worked as a young architect for seven years at a big firm. And I fortunately worked on huge projects, convention centers, courthouses, hundreds of millions of dollars. Then I started at a small firm and we went from 23 to 160 over. And I became a partner and we, got, and we, were, we were very well placed in almost every market that was growing. Very, very very market-driven firm, but then also high quality. I was able to start the interiors division at that company. We, we did a moment where we broke into studios based on project type, and I was one of those architects that was working still on my university at Northridge. I had a hospital project, I had a sports facility, I was doing a K-12. I was just being an architect, doing things I know, but I did the interiors. After a year or so, I was approached by a large nightclub group out of Boston, the Lions group. Uh, they have like 10 bars on Lansdowne, very significant group. And I brought it to our firm and they weren't really interested. The bars, oh, I don't like those guys. But I was trying to explain, this is a historic building in Hollywood called the Hollywood Playhouse. This is a 40,000 square foot building. This has a 24 hour license. This is gonna take a seismic upgrade. This is a big project. And they weren't really interested. So that was the catalyst. Something fell in my lap that was big enough to start a firm. And I was kind of having that moment as well as, I'm an architect that likes to draw and see things built. And when you're a partner in a firm, your real role is to bring in work and collect money. 
And I think you sort of, you lose touch with the work. Uh, it was a good time, perfect situation. I had two kids, they were little, um, and I started it. And then 2003, and once, I got this project. I spoke to some people in this club bar industry and there were no real serious architects trying to design bars and clubs. And they were all getting in trouble with ADA codes and uh, fire codes and permitting. And next thing that we did our first year, we did 28 projects because it had gone from nobody cares about the speakeasy to the fire department shows up and says, I want a second exit or the handicap guy. It, would, it was one of those voids in architectural services in Los Angeles, that the architect restaurants I started meeting, they were designers. They weren't registered. There were big firms who just copied sets of olive gardens. There was no one working in the infrastructure, historic resources, adaptive reuse, whatever you want to call it, and then doing high performance, high quality restaurant bars and nightclubs. And that's what we became known for. Put it putting bars and nightclubs on rooftops and in basements, putting 500 people in a basement that had a 24 inch wide steel staircase coming out of it. No one's supposed to be down there. That kind of stuff. Well, you can't do that just as a designer. You need to be an architect and you need to understand how to like, you know, crack some eggs and really, really go for it. I mean, we till to this day, that's kind of our, we do the, the more complicated projects, the ones that other people are afraid of. And you mentioned the, the exhaustive nature of it. It kind of is. You have to be a real overachiever to be an architect in this restaurant world because that's how the restaurant people make money. They are successful because everything is perfect. The amount of Coca-Cola they put in your glass on the refill, exactly how that steak sits on a plate. It's not haphazard. So the client base I've found is more demanding and understands that the details do matter. But it's the kind of place where they will dig down and will go to a molding store and pick four different moldings out. But, but I think it, to answer your physical question, it all just sort of fell in place based on me just always pursuing the type of architecture I, I loved. Uh, I didn't really mention I became the interiors architect because on the projects I did at the universities, I wanted to be the interior architect and the exterior architect. And on my team, I would have people with curtain wall and helping us pick all the furniture and fabric. And then the other architects in the firm wanted to say, why do you bother? I'm like, how do you do it any other way is how I kept thinking. <laughs> That's a great testament. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. We're talking today with George Kelly, architect and principal of Kelly Architects. For more information, feel free to visit their website at kelly-architects.com. Again, that's kelly architects Dot com. You mentioned, George, uh, uh, about drawing, being really hands-on. How about even drawing by hand? Do you still do so? I still do because I, at 58, I think I am the last generation that did primarily analog college. And I know this because when I graduated from college in 1986 from Texas A&M University, uh, <laughs> we all drew by hand. But within three years, I was pulled aside with a few others to learn some kind of Mac program and then MicroStation. Okay. And in the firm I was at, Gruen Associates, there was 190 people, and five of us were the first ones to learn AutoCAD. After that, they wouldn't hire you if you didn't know AutoCAD. 
And so my experience has been is that the students all through the 90s and the aughts had to spend a normal amount of time learning the programs. They eliminated the drawing classes and the history classes. So we are now finding a little bit of circling around to that, that um, hiring people now who do sort of have pursued drawing. But drawing is, I think, something that people inherently think architects can do. And so even when I was an architect and we were required to hand draw, some people still were terrible at it. But I think what I look kind of, I mean, I don't want to be esoteric. My, my, my uh, understanding of drawing was Van Gogh. I read the story about how he was supposed to be a preacher and he went into the mines and preached. And when he came out, they said, well, how did the preaching go? And he said, not very good, but I know how to draw. <laughs> good. <laughs> and, but I found the drawing is a very powerful tool in the middle of a meeting or on a napkin in a restaurant or anywhere where you can quickly do a, two per, a perspective or a sketch or something to get your idea across. Is it what really the underlying importance of drawing or any of the programs we use, it really doesn't matter how brilliant your vision is. If you can't relay that vision in some sort of media, 1D, 2D, 3D, and explain it to your client or someone else, it, it'll never happen. It'll never get built. And so I think with me and the sketching was a way if I could quickly, this is the chair I'm thinking, this is the boot. I think the acoustic should be set up here. I think the, this is how we're gonna run the grease interceptor to the roof of the building. I can just quickly conceptualize that to a dozen people in a room and then they all, they hit go do it. And uh, if you don't can't sketch, you're like, well, let me go back to a computer. I'll draw for a couple hours and then check in with me later. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's a very powerful method. <laughs> go back to your art gallery meets restaurant. How often do you go into a place if you're out of town, or maybe even your own town, where you 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 go to a restaurant? Maybe you don't go there anymore. Where you go? Gosh, I know how to help these folks. I go to restaurants all the time, as you can understand. It really is in the restaurant world. One of the things that restaurant owners do who are really successful. The really ones who have a lot of money. They travel all over the world. And you know what they do? Then they just go to a bunch of restaurants. <laughs> and then we talk about really? them. But I think what I do is you walk in a restaurant and you, I will say to myself, a designer has been here. This is purposeful. That I know these finishes. I know these materials. I go into some restaurant and I go, this guy got lucky. This is really funky and weird, but it's kind of working. And you go into most places and you go, Nobody did this. This is just called it. And um, it's not bad. You know, there's a lot of places it just is what it is, your sandwich shop, your thing. But um, it might relate to the food, too. You might be like, oh, so they're just opening up cans of Cisco. They're not really cooking. Uh, and I think that's the, that's the big connection in this 20 years I've got. It's gone from, I tell a story about, you know, my mother could cook, but then she got a job. So my sisters learned how to shop and cook a little bit. Uh, but then they both are very successful. They're both more successful than me. Their daughters could shop, but at Whole Foods where the food's already made. And now you get kids who can't shop or cook or do anything. All they can post. Make. And so because of that, in the global macro food world, it had to go to the street. It had to go in the restaurant. And if someone told me the day that Starbucks starts sell selling protein, you know, it, it's that's it for mom cooking eggs and bacon in the morning. Uh, so we, we 
serve people every meal in every way. And so I think the restaurant, you should feel something. It's like your dining table. At some point, your restaurant is your dining table outside of your house. It's your kitchen counter outside of your house. Because you have to get the customer into that slower heart rate. I'm relaxed. I'm defenseless. I'm feeding myself with low anxiety, just like you do at home. That's also what you have to achieve to be a successful restaurant. This is purposeful. You, you, you'd stated that. Yes. It's Get a little in depth like, about that. About manipulation. Some people think it's, oh, you're a manipulator. What am I if I'm not a manipulator as an architect? I want you to do exactly what I planned out. I want you to walk down this way, turn right, sit in that booth and go, whoa, look at that view. Oh, I can see the chef. Oh, I like the bar. It's all considered. We've, we've always done our own 3D in-house since the day I started. I, I'm a big believer in 3D rendering and, and outside of 3D drafting because it's almost like it's a, you're giving them this artificial impression of what they're getting. But the more hyper-realistic in the aesthetic and the feel the more they trust you, and architects listening, the more they trust you, the less they call you or bother you, and they pay on time because the clients are busy running their restaurants. If a client is up in your face and calling every day, it's probably because they just don't trust you and they don't trust your design. So um, we do very specific. We don't do fly-throughs, but lots of renderings, lots of 3D. So everyone feels the understands it, and then we can almost – truncate the design so we can get into, there's a lot of technical things in, our, in restaurants. I and mean, honestly, it's nice to talk about all these aesthetics, but you know, you, you gotta have time to engineer it and solve all the utility issues. And This is the Modern Architect podcast. We're talking today with George Kelly of Kelly Architects. For more information, feel free to visit their website at kelly-architects.com. Again, that's kelly-architects.com. Our public service Announcement for uh, for today's show is uh, the Independent eighty eight point five FM. The uh, Independent eighty eight point five FM is a member supported public radio station broadcasting live from the campuses of California State University Northridge and Saddleback College. George, if we go back to uh, to the eighty eight point five, since we also do a radio station, is uh, why is it so important to you? It's important to me because I'm somebody who loves music. I think of music all the time. Okay. My parents had records. I love music. And I'm a kid of the 80s, so I was a new waiver. But I was a new waiver to the point where, you know, we wanted to be at the record store every Thursday afternoon when they came in to see if there's one Buzzcocks album, one Sex Pistols, something, something we've never seen, early Costello. Like, and it was, and we were alone. We were unique. And this music was not mainstream. It became mainstream. Mm-hmm. But I explained to people, you know, I got to see U2 and R.E.M. on some of their first tours in small clubs. And so... Wow. Music. I moved through life with music, uh, and what happened in Los Angeles? There was a very famous radio station now still out here, K Rock, that had a lot of these DJs who had been close to the bands, and they they would get you inside places you didn't know in their descriptions of music. At some point, they all got let go, but they've all come to this radio station. So this radio station is some of the top DJs in Los Angeles radio working out of college now to maintain this independent music and i think it's you know it's, it's not mainstream almost and not that you've become successful you're mainstream but we always need to support the independent artist like that great band who needs some radio play that 
Well, in today's world, you know, if you don't have the TikTok and the YouTube, there's all sorts of ways to success. But I'm still the believer is no, you you become a band, you you work hard, you get some good songs, and people will hear you. And and eighty eight point five still does that. They still support the the quality music, the small and they and it's diverse. It's diverse too. It's a whole sort of the who put it out there, the American songbook. Can you write a great song that well, I, I'll digress for a moment. Something's going on. I walk around my Whole Foods and they're playing Echo and the Bunnymen. I'm in Edinburgh, Scotland two weeks ago and they're playing Echo and the Bunnymen. This Kate Bush song, that Everyone Loves It's Own Stranger Things, I have the import single on that because we loved Kate Bush. And I don't feel like we're cutting edge, yeah. but it's almost what's old is new. And I don't think that's really it. I just think some things are better and they're more timeless and they deserve to go forward. And maybe that's a lot of thinking as an architect. There's fashion and then there's something that's beyond fashion that continues. And that's what I found with 88.5. There's touchstones in there. Of, um, I got my kids to listen to it, listen to the office sometimes. And um, it's important. George, what would you like to share with your audience today that we may not have touched on? <sighs> so I think with, um, architecture. A couple of things that I was always told, I, everything I know about architecture, once I've learned from studying architecture, I've, I've known other architects. One of them is young architects are always looking to become, what do I do? And they always go to the big firm. That works for a while. But when someone told me, find a group of people that don't have architects, become their architect, and then you're never without work. And that's how the restaurant architect work. Same with the restaurant architecture, it could be some of the most complicated and fraught with success or failure. I'll give you an example. If an architect designs an office building and they can't fill it, they probably won't blame him for the design. If an architect designs a school and the kids are terrible and the teachers are terrible and they all flunk out, they're not going to blame you. If an architect designs a restaurant and it fails, they might blame you. <laughs> you know, it's, this, okay. it's a different sort of risk reward and so that is it's very comprehensive it's very demanding we we like to find people who their whole life they've been overachievers they're not asked to do something they just do it because they inherently can't do it they, they can't not do it and i think i'm one of those people um, outstanding george it's been an absolute honor and pleasure having you on the show today thank you oh thank you for having me this has been a lot of fun Thank you. I'd love to have you uh, again if you're open to uh, revisiting. There's just more I, I'd love to talk to you about, and I think your audience would, uh, everyone's audience would love to hear you. It's an absolute pleasure. Oh, you know, I'll work on something. I'm working on a TED talk. Uh, if you can put this on. Oh, was that right? Oh, first, there was beer. And it's this idea of, first, there was, people were just scattered. I'm a big believer in Darwin, of course, of evolution, of, you know, we're living in this epoch of farming. But it hits me like, why do we farm? Well, we farm to eat some food. But the reality is, in my story, you and I are sitting around the river, and we're, of course we're boiling water because you can't drink the water. It's putrid. And we're making, trying to make it taste good. But we come up with beer, and we give it to our friends. And I'm like, damn, this is good. I'm like, I know. It's taken a while, but it's good. But what do we need? Well, I need this wheat. How much? A lot of it. Like the whole hillside. I think we got macro farming for beer. And the evidence on that is when they're coming into Egypt with those stones every spring and the, and the wheat, it's not because they were making bread with, buff, you know, they were making beer and you drink beer. There's 
good evidence of uh, fermentation 12, 14,000 years in almost every culture in the world. So once you have beer, you already have fashion. There's the guy who does the fashion. We have them. You know, I've got some civil engineering. I have food and culture. You know, at some point I'm like, take this beer to those big dudes out in the woods and give them the beer and say if they want more, they can come here and protect me. It's a kind of military too. I have to control things. Then out of the woods comes this beautiful woman. And this is where the wine people come in in the story. Because they're like, wine is longer. I'm like, but she goes, What's, why are you so happy? Like, I've seen God. Really? Yeah. And we're beer going like, that's cool. Why did like, because even when the, when the the Romans came to Scotland, they were already drinking beer. Like, look how happy they all are. Okay, fine. We'll have God, but make sure you drink some beer or wine while you do it. And what do you need? You need a building. I know how to do that. You can't get God. You can't have God. This is where my devout friends start to lose it on me. Until you have beer. Until you have, the beer gives you the spirituality. It gives you the moment to pause. And you're, but you have to have a place in the world where you can drink your beer, get a little loopy, go to sleep, and feel protected. So you already have a little bit of village. You already have community. You have a little farming. You have all those those things. Um, so I tell people in my my children go to really nice colleges because people drink a lot of beer and alcohol, and then they hire me to design places to do more of that. So what's important in my world is alcohol and drinking and eating. Above all, almost. Above family. Family first. But those are sort of how I, I, I can feel comfortable about what I do every day. Outstanding. George, again, absolute pleasure to having you on. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for indulging me. All right. You've been listening to the Modern Architect podcast and radio show. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been George Kelly, architect and principal of Kelly Architects. For more information, feel free to visit their website at kelly-architects.com. Again, that's kelly-architects.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. Today's episode is made possible by Swatchbox, the leading sample platform for architects and designers. Swatchbox brings thousands of product samples from the world's leading manufacturers into one platform. Browse materials for inspiration, create custom collections, then request your samples for free with automatic next day or second day shipping. Get started at Swatchbox.com.